Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Today, we're going to be talking about the issue of unmarked graves at the site of former Canadian residential schools. These are the infamous 19th and 20th century institutions where Indigenous students once were forced to live and study. And if you're from Canada, this subject will likely require little in the way of introduction. It was something Canadians discussed intensely following the May 2021 announcement that the location of 215 presumed graves had been identified with ground-penetrating radar in Kamloops, British Columbia. Roseanne Casimir, chief of the local First Nation, to Kamloops, to Sequatmuk, said that knowledge keepers within the community had guided investigators to the area to be searched, which had once been an apple orchard on the residential school's premises. The chief also said that knowledge keepers had already told her that what lay below the surface was graves of children whose deaths had previously been undocumented. Following that announcement, several other First Nations announced their own discoveries. And in December, the Canadian press called the discovery of unmarked graves the news story of the year. Now, if you're not from Canada, it's hard to describe the scale of the national reaction to this story. It's been known for decades that thousands of Indigenous children died during their time in the residential school system, many of them from tuberculosis. But this kind of discovery set the country off emotionally. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, lowered the Canadian flag on public buildings and didn't raise it for another five months. And journalists became unrestrained in the language they used. In one Canadian newspaper, a headline ran, Is this Canada's Holocaust moment? Canadians were told that these weren't just graves, they were unmarked child graves. And furthermore, it was suggested in the media, these kids hadn't just died from malnutrition or untreated disease, which of course is bad enough, some jumped to the conclusion that these children were flat-out murdered and dumped in shallow graves in the middle of the night, as in a horror film. Such especially sensational claims were aired on the national broadcaster, the CBC, including on an investigative show called Fifth Estate. In the Kamloops press, meanwhile, Dr. Sarah Beaulieu, the ground-penetrating radar expert who'd helped with discovery, described, as a newspaper put it, Quote, recollections of children as young as six years old being woken up in the middle of the night to dig holes for burials in the apple orchard. But there was one odd thing about the story, and it got odder as the weeks and months marched on, which is this. No one seemed to be in any kind of hurry to see what was actually beneath the Earth's surface. All they had were ground-penetrating radar images, and those images don't show bodies or caskets or anything like that. What this technology shows are soil disturbances, which, depending on their depth and spacing, can sometimes indicate the presence of grave sites. Why weren't police or indigenous authorities or forensic teams searching for the remains of these poor children? It's important to remember that Canadians were being told that this was a crime scene. Not just crime, but mass murder on a scale that the country had never before witnessed. And this is what I found so confusing about the media spectacle. 
If you told Canadians that 215 murdered white children were buried in a field in Toronto or Ottawa or Vancouver, there'd be investigators and police all over the scene to see if they could find remains that could be tested and identified and perhaps used as a basis for prosecuting the murderers. Many of the abuses at the Kamloops Residential School and others like it date to the middle of the 20th century. This means that some of the perpetrators of these claimed child homicides, that is, teachers, administrators, priests, and ministers who worked at these schools, some of them could still be alive. Shouldn't we be getting hard evidence and building a case against them so that justice can be done? These were questions I was asking myself in mid to late 2021, but I didn't ask these questions out loud because I lacked the courage. Like I said, there was an odd sort of atmosphere in Canada when it came to this story. No one, including politicians or journalists, wanted to be seen as contradicting or even scrutinizing the indigenous knowledge keepers who assured us that these were undocumented child graves. No further investigation was necessary. So even as the weeks and months went by and no hard evidence was dug up, there was this strange, unsettled sense that we weren't supposed to say anything about it. And I submitted to that. My guest today is someone who did not. Her name is Frances Widowson, and until very recently, she was a liberal arts professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. But she was fired earlier this year, in part, she says, because she refused to toe the line on the official university pronouncements regarding the presumed child graves. And she's also written about it in an article entitled Billy Remembers, which appeared in an American publication in February. Which gets to another odd aspect about this story. In recent months, several foreign publications have provided more in-depth coverage of the follow-up to this story than Canadian media, because the taboo against questioning Indigenous knowledge keepers doesn't seem to extend past Canada's borders. When a Canadian publication called the Dorchester Review published a skeptical article by Quebec academic Jacques Rouillard, the Federal Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Mark Miller, personally authored a long Twitter thread denouncing such skepticism as, quote, ghoulish, and re-traumatizing for survivors. Shockingly, this federal minister also called the article, quote, part of a pattern of denialism, as if the author were on moral par with a Holocaust denier. This is a slur on the author, and I believe on all those who are seeking scrutiny of this issue. Few dispute the general cruelty meted out by the residential school system. Personally, I find the idea of undocumented burials on the grounds of former residential schools to be entirely credible, and I'd be surprised if at least some of those suspected child graves at Kamloops and other sites aren't exactly what has been claimed. Rather, what is being protested here is the taboo against advocacy for any kind of inquiry or fact-finding that goes beyond what we already have been told. To repeat, if claimed unmarked graves of white children were to be found in Canada, everyone would be clamoring for more information so that justice could be served. Why isn't that happening now? Aren't indigenous children worth as much as white children? With me to discuss all this is the aforementioned Frances Widowson, beginning with a short discussion of how this issue affected her exit from Mount Royal University. And for those of you who would like more background information on the issues and facts we are discussing, I have posted the text of this introduction, complete with web links, on the Quillette webpage corresponding to this podcast episode. Just Google Quillette Podcast and Francis Widowson. You've been involved in this whole professional controversy. Uh, you were let go by your university. One detail you mentioned we were talking about casually before I started recording 
do I have it right that your faculty union is actually supporting you to some extent? Because I know that in controversies of this type, even though it's the job of faculty unions to, to support people in your position, they have their own ideological commitments and there's been a, a sort of tension there. What is the status with your case? Yes. So my union is a very good union. It has deep roots in the duty of fair representation. So I know there's a lot of problems with, and I hear about them all the time, of faculty associations not abiding by their duty. So the union has been very good. Of course, they do have board members who are very problematic, who have actually actively celebrated my termination. But those board members are supposed to be recusing themselves in any discussion that goes on. So the union is taking 10 grievances forward to arbitration in 2023. And we have a very good case and they've been doing their job in terms of fairly representing me. So that that is one important factor in my case, which which doesn't play out very well in a number of other cases. I know there's a limit to what you can say because there's a legal process here, but how much of your termination had to do with what we're going to talk about, which is the question of suspected grave sites for children, and how much was other concerns? What's the backstory on that? Things have been difficult since 2016 with numerous people harassing me, if we're going to call it harassment, which of course is a very thorny issue, but people undermining my position at Mount Royal, which I kept uh, documented. So I thought that I would have this whenever they tried to push me out to show them that I had been enduring this poisonous environment for several years. But what happened is that gradually it became more and more difficult to challenge wokeism. The residential schools is a major area where one has to accept that the residential schools were genocidal and actually the university put out a proclamation that genocide had been committed against indigenous people. And they said things like, well, you can dissent from this because you have academic freedom, but the university's position is that the residential schools were genocidal. So that put me in a very, very difficult position because it seemed like I was going against the official kind of mandate of the university. This made things more and more difficult for me, eventually resulting in um, an Indigenous scholar going after me. The catalyst was the defense of Wendy Mesley. So I defended Wendy Mesley on So Twitter. by the way, just to, I'm going to interrupt you there because 90% of my listeners don't live in Canada. And oh, okay. Wendy Mesley, I know who she is. She's um, a CBC host who was run under the bus under absurd circumstances. But yes. putting aside whether the word genocide is an apt description of what happened at Canada's residential schools, I think everybody would agree that there were many horrible things that happened at residential schools and that forcing kids to give up their culture and taking them away from their families to be sent to boarding schools. I mean, it can have all kinds of horrific consequences. What bothers me about what you just said is the idea of the school taking this official position on classifying something as a genocide. I think the Armenian Genocide, to take an example of killings on a far greater scale, I think the Armenian Genocide was a genocide. There are politicians in Turkey who would violently disagree with that. At the same time, even though I think the Armenian Genocide was a genocide, I'm not sure I would want a university to take an official position on it. Is this a normal thing at your university that they would just sort of offer pronouncements on political issues? And this was happening more and more. And actually, it was the George Floyd killing right. that resulted in it becoming much more aggressive. That's when it sort of unleashed these forces of wokeism like we'd never seen before. 
and, and it wasn't just Mount Royal, it was all universities across the country. And then with what happened in Kamloops, there was all sorts of more pronouncements that were made. So this is becoming increasingly prominent and many people just go along with it because they think seems like a right, the right thing to do and makes everyone seem like they're a good person, but it acts as a discouragement against asking critical questions about what's being put forward. And people start to feel more and more uncomfortable about doing so. And in my case, it really put a target on me, like when they did that, because a whole bunch of this anonymous student group, for example, of other anonymous Twitter accounts started really painting me as someone who really didn't belong at Mount Royal because I had this critical position on what had been announced as being the official position. So that's the problem is that it's not really so much whether people can argue that case or not. It's more when the university takes a position, it puts dissidents and critical thinkers and people who dispute what's being put forward in a very kind of awkward position within the university. At the time, if I remember correctly, it was 215 suspected grave sites of children, residential school victims. It was announced that this was discovered. As I understand, none of those suspected grave sites have been unearthed to this day. It was based on ground-penetrating radar data, which indicated soil disturbances consistent with the kind of graves being talked about. When that was announced, you know, I've been in the media for a couple of decades. I've never seen anything like it. It was kind of like a religious type thing. Yes, so both the president of Mount Royal University and the president of the Faculty Association made public statements about how this was just terrible and traumatizing to hear about the bodies of the 215 children that had been found. Which I don't think even the indigenous tribe that announced it, they announced that there was ground penetrating radar data, but you're saying that the school officials kind of went a step further from that announcement and, and, and yes. said... yes. And as well said that we had to offer our support to Indigenous scholars and Indigenous people at Mount Royal. Like we had to actually kind of help them through their grieving process with respect to the 215 bodies of Indigenous children that had been found. And I was right off the bat wanted to see what the evidence was. Just to be clear, it is entirely possible that there are indeed murder children under the ground, as is claimed. So we don't know otherwise. We need exhumations and right. excavations, but we can look at, and this is what I did in this piece in the American Conservative called Billy Remembers. I trace all the evidence and all the discussions over this period of time. See, and we're going to get to that. I rushed the narrative a little bit, but bring me back to that time when your bosses at the university are telling you that uh, you're now a kind of social worker. Uh, you have to take care of all these people who have been harmed by the news, right? And as well on social media, which was part of my downfall, my activities on social media. Initially, I, I tried to communicate with my colleagues about a variety of different issues and and, and I started to realize that people were, were really becoming very irrational and it was difficult to have any discussions and in fact, impossible to have any of these discussions. And so I started to satirize the kinds of over the top claims that were being made. The fact that Canada Day was seen as being a, a genocide, a celebration of genocide uh, was being claimed by a number of people at Mount Royal on on social media. And I was becoming very 
slightly upset about this because I'm not a, I don't celebrate Canada Day myself, but I know a number of people who do celebrate Canada Day and they, they're like working class people who take their kids to see some fireworks or go see a concert. Like they're not celebrating Canada Day because they want to make some kind of political statement. And I thought it was really, really offensive. All these privileged woke university professors castigating people who just want to have a day off and enjoy that day with their families and so on. And that led me to satirize the kind of claims that were being uh, made. Yeah, I find it ironic. Some of these academics who would be horrified if somebody took away their right to have a whole year off for sabbatical or uh, lecturing, <laughs> yeah. every, lecturing yeah. everybody. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the substance of this. Again, there's been a number of First Nations communities that have said that they have now conducted ground-penetrating radar surveys that have resulted in data that is consistent with soil dislocations uh, that might be produced by, say, burying a bunch of children. To your knowledge, have any of these been unearthed or exhumed? I guess it's been almost a year now. Do we have any concrete information about that? We do have some. So there's been some cases where there have been excavations and there's been no no discoveries. A lot of these kids really were treated brutally. It would be surprising if some grave sites weren't found, right? There's two kinds of different situations which should be clarified. One is cemeteries. And in the case of Kamloops, there, there actually is a cemetery where bodies are buried. And no one should be surprised about bodies being found in a cemetery. So that's one kind of area. And Cowessus was a cemetery, not even a residential school. It was a community and it was attached to a hospital. So there's all sorts of remains that are there from a variety of different circumstances. So that's kind of one area. The other area is the clandestine burials. And that's the Kamloops case is it's claimed that first started out that 215, but then it got downgraded to 200 because excavations had been done in the area where the 15 disturbance had been found and no remains have been found. So they, they just kind of quietly changed it to 200. That's why it got changed. But it's claimed that the soil disturbances found in this orchard were clandestine graves of children being buried. There's an insinuation it was murdered children. And in fact, the stories are that children were woken up in the middle of the night to go and dig these graves. This is where the situation gets complicated, including in regard to your critique of this, because you have emphasized in your own reporting that even years before this story broke, there was this whole subculture of people, I guess going back to the 90s, making extraordinary lurid claims about people being thrown into furnaces, midnight burials, truly gothic stuff, including things that really strained credulity because, well, I'll let people read your article. But I think it's important to emphasize that the First Nations leaders themselves have not relied on those tales. It traces back to the 90s, you're correct, from stories that are being told and disseminated by a minister, a defrocked United Church minister, Kevin Annette. He's written a number of books, and, and this was there, there was a, a film that was produced called Unrepentant, and it had all sorts of interviews with people who were making claims about babies being thrown into furnaces and these sorts of things. One of the claims, I think, was that the Queen visited Canada and personally abducted children. 
Yes, yes. Children being taken on a picnic by Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. And then those children were never heard. From. And I think there's about 10 children. Those children were never heard of again. And of course, that's that story, which is the most difficult to believe, has been fact checked. And it turns out that Queen Elizabeth was not even in Western Canada at that time. Although I think it's important to note that the more modern claims last year did not explicitly reference any of this eyebrow raising stuff. But you thought it was important to raise it. Because as I understand, once these more official pronouncements were made about the GPR-based revelations, something similar came out. There were people who maybe repeated some version of these more elaborate tales that dated from the 1990s. Is that right? It's meant to sort of say, look, we need to employ the same evaluation to all these accounts. And what we're seeing is we had just a couple and they were kind of connected to Kevin and Nett in, in the 90s and 2000. And then when the, the claims were made about the ground penetrating radar, a whole bunch of other stories and, and ones that had changed quite significantly. I believe um, it's a person by the name of Eddie Jules. It was interviewed in 2000. It was a secondhand account. So he didn't actually see anything in 2000 in that interview. But in 2021, now he had actually witnessed things. And then we just recently saw the Fifth Estate program, which I believe was in January 2022. A whole bunch of other stories have now come forward. It's possible that those stories are true. One always has to keep an openness about these because you want to investigate. I mean, there is hard evidence available, presumably, in the sense that if you did exhume burial sites, you could get evidence about the manner of death of children discovered, you know, whether their bones were burned, whether they were tortured. Have you heard anyone describe in a coherent way why so many months after the shocking initial announcements, there hasn't been anyone actually digging up this evidence? Especially, I guess, since to the extent these kids were murdered, theoretically, the murderers could still be alive and you could bring them to justice, right? I, I mean, even if they're in their 80s or 90s. Yeah, it is odd. And um, the Fifth Estate program, which interviewed a bunch of people, I believe it's Manny Jules, did say that they had a decision that was made in a consultation session that they were going to, they were going to do excavations in that area. We haven't heard anything more about that, and I think that's what has to happen now. It's odd that, you know, the RCMP, and this was the original, one of the pieces of evidence, which I should mention, was that a, a, a human rib bone had been found. So that was one of the reasons that was given for why the orchard, they did ground penetrating ra radar in the orchard, was because a human rib bone had been found. I asked Sarah Bolio through email what the situation was about that. She didn't reply to my inquiries, but that is a very serious matter which should be pursued. Has that rib bone been determined to be a human rib bone? If it's a human rib bone, that's human remains. We have to identify who that person was, who that rib bone belonged to, but it's all very vague as to where that rib bone is. So, so those kinds of details make one wonder is that really a likely possibility that that's a rib bone and not just a rib bone of some other animal? The ground penetrating radar survey was guided by what is called the oral history provided by knowledge keepers. And so anybody who's looking for more evidence is in the awkward position of having to say, where did the knowledge keepers get their knowledge? And 
there's a kind of like sacred shroud that surrounds these discussions. Is that part of maybe why this has become so obscure? And this was part of my difficulties at Mount Royal University, is that there's this idea that indigenous quote unquote ways of knowing must be respected and valued, which basically means that you're not supposed to question them and they almost must just be taken as given and not, uh, you're not supposed to require other evidence besides that. And this is what's happening with respect to these, these alleged clandestine burials is that the indigenous knowledge keepers have said that they know that children have been buried there. And so to say, okay, we've got to do excavations is to sort of challenge the sacredness of those oral testimonies. And so I think that's part of the, the difficulty of it, because if you do excavations, it's possible that no remains will be found. And in fact, in my view, it's quite likely that no remains, or it, it just seems improbable that if you were engaged in clandestine burials of children that you had murdered, you would not be waking up children in the middle of the night to dig the graves. And so if we're going to say, okay, we're going to do the excavations and it's possible that no remains will be found, then that will then throw those ways of knowing into disrepute. It will be disrespectful to the knowledge keepers. And so there's kind of pressure to say, no, they should just be believed and there should be nothing further. Let's talk a, a little bit about the reaction in the last few months, because I think a lot of people, including me, saw the story and said, well, the GPR data suggests the hundreds of children were murdered. I'm sure we'll see these bodies exhumed in a matter of days or weeks. Uh, and then the months passed and nothing happened. You could kind of sense an uneasiness in the media to talk about it. We're now in this weird situation where the federal government doesn't want to talk about it. Like Trudeau lowered the flags for five months during an election campaign to present himself as atoning for the sins of a nation. I mean, the whole thing was very theatrical and it would look terrible if maybe that narrative turns out to be not exactly as he presented it. First Nations have their own complicated situations, but the media, which is, is what you'd expect to be asking these hard questions, <laughs> they're in this mortifying position too, because for weeks and weeks they ran, even conservative publications ran these columns about how could our nation do this and a lot of garment rending stuff. And now for those same reporters and pundits to go back, that's awkward. You've seen people mostly in the international media writing about this, whereas it's just really strange because Canadians themselves don't want to touch it. It's become this just mortifying radioactive thing that no one wants to discuss. Is that how you see this? Like it's, it's now easier to publish on the subject internationally than it is in Canada? So what's happened is that there's kind of a Canadian-wide opposition to this. And I should say just recently, which I was very shocked to see, Mark Miller, Indigenous Affairs Minister, castigated, he didn't mention him by name, but he castigated Jacques Riard for his piece in the Dorchester Review and said the demand that we should have excavations and evidence before making this claim was, in his words, ghoulish. Yeah, I saw that. And, and, and Miller, of course, is a university-era friend of, of Justin Trudeau's. So here we have a very brave historian who's not part of any 
connected network of, of people who've been writing about the residential schools. He just felt that it was his duty as a historian. By the way, he's an older guy and he's can't imagine he would have published that piece if you were like a 30 or 40 year old aspiring academic. He, he's one of these guys who kind of doesn't care as much yes. about what people think. The Mark Miller thing is interesting because I remember that from a, a little while ago where he went on this, I wouldn't call it a rant because it looked like it had been carefully worded, where, yeah, he was excoriating certain unnamed individuals for asking rude questions, demanding evidence about this narrative that he and his boss, Justin Trudeau, rode in the last election about how their best place to further reconciliation with Indigenous groups because of all these historical crimes. He got a lot of pushback on that. Maybe a year ago, it would have been this, this very rapturous thing, like, you know, you tell him, Mark, but that wasn't really the response. I remember looking at it, and there were a lot of people telling him where, where to get off. I also noticed that in the last little while, there's been a few Indigenous groups that have brought mm. forward fresh evidence. And to their credit, I'm thinking of one group in particular, they were very circumspect. They said, this is what the GPR data suggests, and these are suspected sites. The Indigenous groups themselves were very careful about it. And I noticed that the media was also circumspect. Has the media been chastened, but in a way that like it won't admit to being chastened? I don't get the sense that even though the media is supposed to ignore pieces like yours, that they have actually ignored them. I think people have read it, and it's affecting the way they're reporting stuff going forward, even if they're not prepared to admit that they screwed things up in the past. Is that your sense? I think so. And, and as well, it's possible that it's just media. They just get jaded. It's no longer news to them. The first one, Kamloops, which is, of course, my, this is the case that I'm most interested in because it was sort of what started off everything. And it's the one that I've done in-depth research on. That was the one that was the most, what I call hysteria. I see it as hysteria that was happening. And then it's gradually kind of diminishing, perhaps due to time, but hopefully due to some of the information which is being sent to various journalists. But to a certain extent, this this is, has gone beyond journalism. And, you know, you're talking before about how you're, <laughs> the administration of your, your old school, MRU, they take positions on things. They say this was a genocide. But you also have corporations doing this kind of thing or corporate entities. I talked before about how the more recent revelations from First Nations have been responsibly worded. I'm thinking in particular, Williams Lake First Nation, they disclosed that suspected graves were found. And mm -hmm. right after that happened, this is in late January 2022, so recently, uh, somebody who works at Vancouver Coastal Health, one of the largest health networks in Canada, shared with me a mass email that was sent out by Vivian Eliopoulos, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the president and chief executive officer of Vancouver Coastal Health. And it says, Dear VCH team, with heavy hearts, we have learned about another discovery of unmarked graves. And this is referring to Williams Lake First Nation. And even Williams Lake First Nation itself didn't say these were unmarked graves. They said they'd found survey data that was consistent with the possibility that these were unmarked graves. Somebody drafted this, somebody in the internal communications department at VCH. I was talking to the person who's, who's an employee at VCH. They don't feel comfortable going and say, actually, this is misinformation you're spreading, because then it's like, well, why are you highlighting this misinformation? Are you a racist? Yeah. We're in this weird time where correcting misinformation is seen as sort of unpatriotic in the battle for reconciliation. Is that how it feels in, in academia? Definitely. And uh, this is due to what, and wokeism, which everyone uses colloquial, 
is the word, but reified postmodernism is that the identities of groups perceived to be oppressed must be made real. So they must I, yeah. be. Accepted. I saw that in your piece. And, and by the way, I, I publish stuff like that all the time at Quillette. But do we really have to go to complicated stories like that? I mean, isn't this just sort of people like martyrdom stories? Yeah. It symbolizes the evil of society. And in this case, there, there is a real evil. I mean, the way Western society treated indigenous people was often brutal and unconscionable. And here we have this narrative that it's such a handy microcosmic encapsulation of it. It's sort of like, you know, when you see a, a movie, there'll be a character who's a stand-in for a whole group of people who are brutalized by some historical crime. This we, we like symbols. We like narratives that give a kind of poetic truth to what we're feeling, including when we feel guilt. Do we need all that postmodernist mumbo-jumbo to explain what's basically a kind of martyrdom story? It's a debate. It's a matter of debate as to why there is this self-flagellating kind of tendency Although my major area of study is Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations, I see a lot of the things that are happening in the study of that area happening in all sorts of areas. So it's not just one thing, and it's largely an attempt to deal with some of the problems uh, that exist in the world. So late capitalist system would be my theoretical perspective on the matter is that there's various kinds of problems that we're we're trying to deal with within the capitalist context. And one of the positions that has emerged out of this is this kind of identity politics kind of way of seeing everything. And so identities of people who are perceived to be oppressed must be celebrated all the time. So this podcast is almost over, but that doesn't mean you can't keep listening to Quillette Podcasts because there's a new Quillette podcast brand called 27 Rouge, hosted by my younger Australian-based Quillette colleague, Scott Newman. I realize that's an artsy name for a podcast. It sounds more like the name of a Montreal hipster bar, but when you check out his first podcast, he will explain what the name means. Trigger alert, it's a little bit morbid, but an interesting concept. You can find 27 Rouge, that's R-O-U-G-E, wherever you download your podcasts. And Scott's first guest is a good one, Rolling Stone editor and Useful Idiots podcaster Matt Taibbi. That's 27 Rouge with Scott Newman. And now back to what's left of the Quillette podcast. To be fair, if I'm an Indigenous person listening to this, I'm thinking, you want to talk about identity politics, who went to residential schools? Who was forced to residential schools? It was Indigenous people racists practice their own identity politics, and it often did drive people to the grave, right? What we're seeing here, maybe some of the social panic, is a response to legitimate feelings of guilt that people have. Well, we're being encouraged to see the expression of guilt as a way of solving problems. Right. It's kind of symbolic kinds of politics, as opposed to actually trying to solve problems. And that's one of my biggest criticisms of this whole kind of hysteria that's going on and not and not responding honestly to it and just continuing to encourage it is there's serious, terrible problems that exist in especially the isolated Indigenous communities. And this whole hysteria is going to do nothing to address that. And so I think symbolic politics are inexpensive, and really don't really do anything. And in fact, possibly even make things worse because 
they just make people increasingly angry and resentful when what really needs to be done is to figure out how to deal with the dependency and the poor educational levels and the fetal alcohol syndrome and all the problems that exist in these communities, rather than to have people like Mark Miller increase his stature by flagellating himself publicly and castigating people like Jacques Riard, who are just honest academics who are trying to draw attention to some of the problems with the existing discussions about this. The first time I ever heard your name, I feel like it was 14 or 15 years ago, you co-authored a book called Disrobing the Aboriginal Industry. Yeah. You wrote this for a university press. It was a really good book. I think at the time I was an editor at the National Post newspaper here in Canada. I think I excerpted it. What was interesting was that the subject of your criticism in that book wasn't Indigenous groups. It was white-collar people, most of them white people in big cities, government officials, consultants, lawyers, who were profiting off what you call the Aboriginal industry. This big pool of money, largely made available by government, that just attracts all of these profiteers. From what I can tell, to this day, those people are, are the main target of your criticism, not the actual indigenous groups. You're targeting the sort of misguided and often cynical and self-serving financial and I guess increasingly moral and political ecosystem that surrounds this issue. Is that a fair summation of your ideas? Yes, and, and that is, that's still the theoretical perspective. So Albert Howard and I, when we wrote the, the book, that was very much written for the general public. That was the intent. And then in 2019, I wrote the theoretical book, Separate But Unequal, which kind of fleshes out the, the theoretical position on how this unfolded. So what happened is that Indigenous struggles got taken over by the legal profession. Arguments we see about how to improve Indigenous circumstances are designed to extract transfers from often the government, but it can be corporations or what have you. And what occurs then is that a very privileged segment of the Indigenous population benefits from the circumstance, but the majority of Indigenous people, especially those Indigenous people in the isolated communities, are suffering more than they ever have before. Francis Widdowson, thank you for being on the Quillette podcast. Thanks very much. I appreciate you having me on. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.